everybody. Welcome to another episode of Sunshine and Brain, part of the Perry Veritas Network podcast, where we have conversations about mental health in as down-to-earth way possible. How's everybody doing? What's going? What's going on? Uh, nice to be here. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> oh man, I've been uh, getting on like these. Um, youtube rabbit holes you know you just kind of get like sucked into like one video after another and there are certain videos that i that i really enjoy watching and uh yeah uh the the like bloopers outtakes like when snl um actors and actresses like you know get out of character because they're laughing and stuff like that like all that stuff sort of sort of cracks me up so I've been uh, uh, going down like a, a rabbit hole of uh, those videos recently, and um, okay, why did I, why did I, why did I share this with you? What was it that I wanted to? What was, what was it that I wanted to, that I wanted to share with you about that? Oh gosh! Oh yeah! Um, and um, the uh, Bill Hader is a, his time in SNL. He was like hilarious. I don't, I don't like watch any TV. I, I pretty much listen to podcasts all the time, but I do <laughs> go on YouTube and watch. Um, like old clips of like characters losing, uh, you know, like losing their shit on SNL and stuff like that. And Bill Hader used to do that a bunch. And he played this character called Stefan. And there's this um, bit where he's like describing this club that he's recommending that people go to. He says that you'll be surrounded by 12 dancing Jupids. <laughs> and Seth Meyers is like, Jupid? What's a Jupid? And he's like, Jewish Cupids. He's Jewish Cupids. He's like, yeah. They just want you to meet someone nice and settle down. <laughs> I think that's fucking hilarious. I think that's so funny. Um, anyway, so, yeah. So uh, there are two big things that I want to talk about for this particular episode. One is that I have a personal story that I want to share um, as part of a larger topic in terms of, like, thinking out loud about you know, when we open ourselves up and, and, um, and how, um, you know, sort of how we do that. And, and then I, and, you know, when we should open ourselves up and, you know, trying to make sure to not kind of go through difficult things on our own. And then the other thing I want to talk about in this episode is, uh, you know, we're kind of a few months removed from Trump's presidency now. And, and, uh, uh, say say what you will about the man's politics and what he did while in office. His presidency is a fascinating study in terms of where this country is at, where our culture is at, um, and how we think about and talk about, you know, mental health. And so I wanted to kind of, I don't know, if, uh, I've been thinking about that a little bit. And so I wanted to kind of talk out loud about some of the thoughts I'm having along those, along those lines. But first things first. Okay. So, um, there's a thing that I've never talked about here and didn't uh, share it with anyone while it was happening and only recently opened up to a couple of folks and shared that, hey, this was something that I was kind of uh, kind of sort of dealing with for for a little while now. And I just sort of, you know, want you to know. Da, 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 da. So anyway, uh, spoiler alert, I, I don't I don't have cancer. But this is a story of a cancer scare, because I did have a little bit of a cancer scare um, recently. Um, so, all right, so here's, here's the story, and then I'll connect it to the larger topic of, you know, what I want to talk about here. 
So uh, just before the pandemic hit back in October of 2020, I had my, you know, sort of annual physical and, and I'm, I'm one of those men that, you know, spent many years of my life not taking care of myself. I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you'll know that I've had like an odyssey, like a dental odyssey, <laughs> like 2020 has been a, a dental odyssey for me <laughs> in terms of uh, sort of all the shit that I've had to go through with my, with my mouth and getting my teeth straight and all that stuff. And it's not that I was walking around with like black teeth, or disgusting teeth or something like that. My teeth looked fine, but it was one of those things where I just hadn't gone to the dentist for like years and years and years. And that caught up with me, you know, big time. And the same was true with doctors. Like I, I didn't do like a regular yearly checkup for, years, you know, years and like certainly not through my 20s and not really through my 30s either, to be honest. I mean, I, I always felt healthy. I've been in and out of shape. I mean, I, I, you know, I definitely I do have a story of weight gain and weight loss in my life. I, I've talked about that a, just a very little bit on the podcast. And, you know, I talked about that in the episode with uh, Kathleen, because that was something that she had um you know, sort of uh, struggled with and gone through as well. So, um, it, you know, I, I have sort of, you know, struggled with my weight, but for the most part, I've been pretty much a healthy guy. You know, I've, I've never felt sick. I, I'm, I'm rarely sick. You know, it's sort of one of those, one of those things, but, you know, needless to say, like, you know, I just never went to the doctor. Like I didn't, I didn't take care of myself in that way. And, and I think it's not, look, it's not uncommon for men to have that as an issue. As a matter of fact, there's, there was a study in America, you know, that's something like the further you are, you know, as a man, the further you are away from an ocean in America, the less, the less likely you are to like take yourself to like a doctor or like a hospital. If you have to, you know, you're, you're going to be more like, Oh, it's just a heart attack. <laughs> like, it's, I can, I'll tough it out. You know what I mean? Like that there's that kind of like mindset in the American, American man. And and my dad, you know, was born and raised in Missouri. You, you can't get farther from the Atlantic or the Pacific than Missouri, you know? And so that kind of like tough it out sort of mindset. But I think for me, you know, it's not, I'm not like a tough guy. I mean, I have a fucking podcast where I bear my feelings. So I'm clearly not like a tough guy, but I, you know, because of my history with depression, you know, certainly my bout, you know, a, a few years ago and in recent years as well with severe clinical depression. But it's not ridiculous to say that I had moderate depression for most of my life. And one of the things that depression does is convinces you that you don't deserve to be taken care of. You know what I mean? Like, that's one of the things that it does. And so, you know, for me, the thought of taking myself to the doctor was like, I, you know, I just like, didn't even entertain it really. Cause it was like, in my mind, it was like, I didn't deserve to go to go to the doctor. You know, I mean that, that's sort of like what the mindset was. So, so I, uh, so yeah, I didn't go to the doctor for many years. And, you know, as I, you know, went many years in therapy and, and fought through depression. I mean, one of the things that I've obviously with, I had begun to think about, was self-care and self-care, you know, it, it means doing things like getting yourself a massage and, and, um, being mindful of where your mind is at and knowing when to kind of set your limits and, 
you know, things like that. But then it's also doing stuff that you don't necessarily want to do, like exercise and like going to the doctor, you know? (laughs) So anyway, so, so I had kind of started going and I went the first time and I I got a clean bill. And the second time I went, my second year I went, which was last October, um, you know, 2020, I, I tested, I had a little blood in my urine and it was, you know, like a minuscule amount. And the doc was like, you know, there's a handful of reasons for it. Some of them are quite serious. Some of them are not serious, you know, but we just want to like exercise caution. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going to refer you to the urologist here and I think you should go and get it checked out and see what's going on. And so I was like, sure. And then I just kind of put it off. You know, um, I knew that one of the possibilities was cancer, but you know, to be honest, I, I was like, at that point I was, you know, in a, in a relationship that, like was really struggling and I was struggling because of that. And, you know, I, I just sort of didn't want to deal with it. So I, I, it's not like I forgot it. I worried about it, but I put it out of my mind and I said to myself, you know, I, I don't want to deal with it. And then, you know, and then a couple of months later, the pandemic hit and it was like this thing where it was like, well, no, I can't deal with it. Do you know what I mean? Like now I can't take myself to the urologist. And I didn't even know if that was true. Like, it wasn't like I, like, did research and was like, oh, no, I can't make an appointment for myself to see if I have fucking cancer. Like, if I wanted to do it, of course I could have made an appointment for myself to see if I have fucking cancer. Do you know what I mean? Like, that could have happened. But in my mind, I was just like, oh, no, I can't do it. So then I didn't do it. And, you know, I thought about it, but I put it off. I thought about it and I put it off. And I was like, okay. And then the next year I went in and this was this past, you know, this was, this past October, yeah, still, yeah, yeah, still 2020. Okay, so it was before, it was 20, 2019 that I discovered the first time, 2020 that I went this past, and and I did the test, and, and there was still blood in my urine. And it was a little bit less than last time. It was a, a minuscule amount, like you can't see it anything. It's like not even cloudy. It's like a tiny, tiny amount. But it's still there, you know. And so now the doc was like, okay, so well, look, it's still here. He was like, and I was like, to be honest, I didn't go. He was like, yeah, it's fine, like you know, it's the same amount. It's even a little bit less. I'm not worried, but I still think you should go to the urologist. You know, I'm going to make a referral. You should get an appointment. So I was like, all right. So I actually followed through this time. I called the urologist. They didn't have an appointment till like the fucking third week of January, (laughs) second week of January. Like, oh my Lord. Like, like they didn't have an appointment for months. And so I was like, all right, you know, put me on the calendar for January. Jesus, I thought we were talking about cancer here, you know, like I didn't like realize that it is a potential for cancer. You can just like wait till January. So I called my doc and I was like, some have appointment till January. Is that okay? He was like, yeah, that's probably fine. It's a minuscule amount. I'm really not worried, but like, you know, you should still do this. So yeah. So January, it's like, all right, you know. Okay. So, you know, this kind of waiting game began and it was this, it was then at this moment, like, you know, I don't know, early on in the process, like I, I, you know, when I first learned about it, I didn't, I didn't, I was like, purposefully, I was like, I don't have anything to actually worry about here. I'm not really interested in worrying the people who I love. And also, I don't want people who I love to worry about me in such a way that I have to now think about this in a way that I don't want to. 
Does that make sense? You know, I, I've known people, people who I love in my life who have, who are survivors of cancer. And certainly as a rabbi, you know, I, I, I've worked with many, many people who have had cancer. I mean, we all die and most of us die of, of cancer, you know, at some point, let it be when we're extremely old, but you know, when you're dying of old age, you, you know, you just got a whole lot of stuff going on in your body there. So it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I've been around it and I understand, you know, how all encompassing it becomes when you have it. When it suddenly you become like the person with fucking cancer, you know? And then it's like, the, then it's like, all, it's like all you talk about, you know, you, you, it's like, Hey, how are you? <laughs> are you okay today? And like, I, I didn't want to think about it. You know what I mean? I, it was like, I'm choosing fucking, um, denial here. This is like purposeful denial, you know? I know that there'll be periods of time where I can just put it off, you know, put it out of my mind and focus on other things. And I don't think that I'll be able to do that as well if I have people who are actively concerned about me. So, yeah, so I didn't, I didn't share it with anybody, you know, I shared it with my therapist and that like, that was it, not anybody else. I ultimately did share it with like, um, a, you know, a relationship that I was, that I was in, but that was, that was because she was kind of like going through the same thing and it was like, Oh, okay. Well, me too. And <laughs> it's like, we could kind of like be like, you know, potentially sick together or something like that. Like, but that was like the only, the only time and you know, and, and like, but besides, you know, I just kind of didn't, I really just didn't want to think about it. So yeah, mo- you know, months went by. It was like the rest of October, November, December, and then finally January. And, uh, you know, I finally went into the urologist. It was, it's a crazy office to go into because in the place where I go, the urology department is the same department as radiology. So it's just like, it's just cancer, you know. So you're going in there and it's just fucking cancer. And, you know, I'm, I'm like a young man. I'm like a young man. I mean, I'm 45, but I'm a young man to, you know, have cancer. So you, you go in there and it's like, you know, who's the potential tragedy in the room? <laughs> you know, it's like this awful feeling. So first trip to the urologist, another, you know, urine sample. And then I met with the urologist and sure enough, there was still blood in there. Again, it was still the small amount. And he was like, look, again, so the same thing that the doc said to me is like, there's a, you know, there's a handful of reasons, potential reasons for this. But the way that we know that it's not the bad thing is that we check for the bad thing. And here's what it's going to involve. So I was going to have to get a CAT scan, which is like a contrast scan. And then I was going to have to get something that I think is called a cystoscopy. I think that's what it's called. So... All right. So first thing was the CAT scan. So again, you know, it's like, well, the threat is cancer. So, okay, I guess I'm doing these tomorrow. And it's like, no, you know, a couple weeks for the CAT scan. And then like the next week we'll do the, we'll do the, um, the cystoscopy. And then we'll know it all 
kind of together. So it was again, like, it was again, like, I, you know, I had to wait like three weeks, <laughs> just like, well, maybe I have cancer, maybe not. I don't know. Kind of able to sort of maintain the same mindset, but also just like, like really living in ignorance. You know, like, like I, I really just like, I didn't do any research. You know, they say like, stay off of WebMD. It's like, yeah, fucking stay off of women, WebMD. That's right. You know, go on to WebMD right now. There could be nothing wrong with you. Just open up WebMD. By the time you close it, you're going to be sure that you're dying, that you have something awful and rare and <laughs> incurable because that's what WebMD fucking does to you, you know, but like, you know, there's a fine line between being obsessed with WebMD and like not doing any research at all. You know what I mean? Just like, not even at all. Just like, out of curiosity, like, what is this? You know, <laughs> it's like, but I think I was afraid of like the slippery slope kind of thing where it's like, you know, I'll just be like, well, what's a cystoscopy? And like, look it up and then be like, oh Lord, no, I don't want to, I don't want to do that at all. You know? So yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't do any, like, I was just like flying blind. So, you know, I, I like went in for the first one, the first thing, which was the CAT scan. And I didn't even know what I was going in for until I got there. And I was like, what am I in for? I literally was like, what am I in for? And she was like a CAT scan. And I was like, okay. So luckily I hadn't eaten because, <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to eat, but like, you know, I didn't. I didn't know. I just luckily I hadn't eaten. So, so then I was like there, this dude comes out, he gives me an impossibly large bottle of water. And he was like, drink either all of this or up to this line over the next half hour. And then we're, and then we're going to take you back. So I had to do that. And then I had to like pee again. And then, um, and then I get an IV of, um, you know, I like you go in and you like, lays me down on this like bed that's connected to this big machine. That's kind of like an MRI machine, big, like circular thing feels like an MRI machine. Um, and, uh, yeah, it lays me down on this bed and then I have to like pull my pants down to my ankles basically, but I can leave my underwear on, which is like nice. Like at least it wasn't humiliating. And, and, uh, and then he put in a, an IV in my arm that was like an iodine IV that he was like, all right, this is going to do funny things to you. It's going to make you feel warm. It's going to make you feel like you have to pee. It might even make you feel like you did pee. Trust me. He's like, trust me. You didn't pee. It's just going to feel like you did. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> Imagine being the first person that like feels this. You know what I mean? Like, okay, we don't know what this is going to do. And then he's like laying on the thing there. And he's like, oh, I feel warm. Oh, it's definitely warm. Oh, it's like warm in my head now. Oh, it's a, oh I, I think I have to pee. Oh, I, I peed. I definitely peed. <laughs> no, you didn't pee. Well, it feels like I peed. <laughs> well, that's a weird effect. Huh. All right, let's try it with somebody else. <laughs> Next person. Oh, my face feels warm. Oh, I have to pee. Did I pee? <laughs> That's two in a row. I think everybody's just going to feel that. What a weird thing to feel. Goodness gracious. So anyway, so that poor guy has to like describe it. And then you're going to feel like you have to pee. This is my job to tell people that they're going to feel like they have to pee. And they're going to feel like they did pee. But then they're not going to have 
I'm not going to actually pee. <laughs> it's like one fifth of my job is to just say those words. Anyway, so described it. And then sure enough, you know, it's like, what happened? So like in the IV goes in me, I have to like just lay there for 15 minutes. They have like a picture of like, like on the ceiling, it's like reeds in like the Everglades or something like that. That's like basically this picture on the ceiling that's like behind the light. So it's lit up and it's like very calming. And yeah, I was just kind of staring at it <laughs> for a while. 15 minutes went by, the guy came over, he, uh, you know, he, he turned the machine on, the, the, the bed started to move, fucking slid me in and out in the machine, like, they take different pictures. Uh, they had to do it the first time without the stain. I did it like once and then they did it afterwards with the stain and it took just like a few minutes or whatever to go through. But like, you know, once it was done, it was like, all right, you're done. You know, have the results in a couple of days and then, then you bounce, you know? And so that was it. I bounced. Um, I had done the iodine stain before. Uh, not like that. I did it like in the shot version. I have this like weird little blind spot in my right eye. So I had to go, this was like years ago. I had to go to the opt- optometrist and, um, you know, he, he did like a stain in my arm. It's like a shot in my arm and, and then like this like test on my eye to kind of see where it was and all that stuff. And so I've done it before. So I like, I knew I wasn't allergic to it, but this was like a different thing. And I was like mildly disappointed because the first time I did the iodine, uh, like one of the side effects was the guy was like, you're going to pee Gatorade for like a couple of days. I was like, what? It was like, yeah, it's going to be like fluorescent green. It's going to be weird. And I was like, oh, that sounds kind of cool actually. And it was, it was, it was like fluorescent green, you know? I was like, man, peeing Gatorade. <laughs> this is cool. So that's uh, that's what I did there, and and uh, and yeah. So fucking. Um, but this was like the 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 drip. This was like an a IV port basically into my arm, and I was like, am I gonna am I gonna pee Gatorade? And he was like, nah, not this time. And I was like, oh, god damn it. It's like one of the good things that can happen. So, but anyway, so, uh, you know, then I was done and I left. And I think like, you know, overall, like the, the, the testing was, it was fine, but it was sort of, there were two things about it that were challenging. I mean, the one thing was like, you know, like I really went in blind. So I, I had no idea what I was doing there. So, but, you know, when, when it happened, it was like, okay, so this, this is what's, this is what's next. And now this is what's next, you know? And so I, I do wish that I was like maybe a bit more prepared. And then also like, there were like these little, like I didn't start to cry and I'm, I'm, it wouldn't, I would, I, can't, I wouldn't put it past me to like, to do that, you know, to like, just like start to cry sitting there, but I didn't, but I did feel a twinge here and there of that kind of like starting to cry. And, and, it, and it was this feeling of like, look, well, this is either nothing or this is essentially the first step towards a really long, hard, challenging journey that I don't really want to go on, you know? So it was like that sort of feeling and like sitting there drinking the bottle, like, you know, just like wanting to be a good patient, but also like just not, you know, really just not wanting to be there. And then realizing that I, you know, I had set myself up to like do it alone. Do you know what I mean? Like in that moment, is when I was like, man, I, I wish that I could just like be texting a friend right now and that they could like be here with me for this, you know, but would it be harder? 
maybe I think it would have been more emotionally honest, you know, because I, I could have, I could have, you know, I could have been more present in how I was actually feeling in that space. If I had a friend there to protect me to, to do that, but no, I, you know, I did it alone. So that test happened. And by then it was like, I don't know. I just kind of felt like so stubbornly committed to just doing it alone that I just like, I, I, you know, by then it was like, I just, I wasn't going to share it with anybody. So, you know, that was a Tuesday. I had therapy. I did, obviously I shared it with my therapist. So I talked about it with my therapist and, you know, that was, that was definitely helpful. And that was the Tuesday. And then the following Monday was the cystoscopy and that I really like, you know, a part of me was like, all right, if there's something really off at the CAT scan, they're going to call me to kind of see, to let me know something's off, you know? And I knew that my prostate wasn't swollen because in my first meeting with the doc, he did do the, like the finger up the butt kind of move, which also I didn't, I never, it's funny. I didn't share that. It's funny. I'll have to like back up to like get to that story. <laughs> Cause this happened like way before the CAT scan. It was like my first meeting with the urologist. He just took his finger up my butt. I think it's just like what he does, you know, he's like, I'm a urologist. I'm going to stick my finger up your butt, you know, <laughs> like, but this is, we're just meeting for lunch, doc. That's what I do. Listen, when I meet you, I stick my finger up butts. It's like, it's like, it's what I love. It's why I got in this business. So, um, yeah, I had to fucking do that during the first meeting. I learned that I, I don't have any interest in butt play for myself. You know, it's no, uh, judgment on anyone. Um, and that was a, a thing that I learned about myself, um, through this process. And I didn't, I didn't enjoy it at all. Uh, it was painful. Um, but, relieving to hear that, you know, the prostate is sort of fine. And it was just kind of that moment of just like, well, now I've entered that stage in my life where that's happened. You know what I mean? Like up till then I hadn't, I hadn't had that happen. I, you know, I, I thought like when I turned 30, I learned that it happens when you turn like, you know, 40 and I was like, okay, I got 10 years. <laughs> and then when I turned 40, they were like, oh, you don't have to do it till you're 50. And I was like, what? Oh, glory. They're like, yeah, no, we don't like, it used to be that we just did it to everybody, but now we don't, you know, we were just like sticking fingers in everyone's butts. <laughs> we, were just, was like, we were like willy nilly about, about that, but, but we decided that we wouldn't, that we wouldn't, that we wouldn't do that anymore. You know, only like in this only necessity. And so, uh, so yeah, so you get a little bit of blood in your urine and I guess that's, Reason enough, you know, reason enough. So yeah, I did that. So I knew my prostate wasn't swollen. So I knew that wasn't going to be what they discovered. But I did think like, I was like, well, if they discover something, they're probably going to call me right away. You know what I mean? They'll be, it'll be like the second, like the next day. They're going to be like, okay, you got to come back in. There's a tumor in your prostate or something like that. Like, like, I, like I was like, that's always how it goes. You know, like they don't fuck around once they find something that, you know, so I didn't get a call. So I was like, okay, no waiting in that way reminds me of this. So there, there's this, uh, I, I have no idea if this is true or not, and I'm not going to do the research, but uh, so I had a chance to like work with a bunch of, uh, uh, Bedouins when I lived in Jerusalem for my first year of rabbinical school. And it was like an awesome experience. And, um, and there's the legend in Israel is that, you know, for Bedouins, like tea is like extremely important and hospitality is extremely important. And so when you visit them, you know, they give you tea and, and supposedly how many cups of tea they give you 
is like representative of, you know, how they feel about you and, and what they're saying in terms of your time there. So it's like one cup of tea is like, welcome to the encampment. It's nice to have you here. Feel free to stay for a little bit. We can certainly talk, but if I don't give you another cup of tea, then it's time to go. You know, two cups of tea is, you know, we're, we're, it's great. You know, we're having a great time. Feel free to stay longer. You know, you're, you're, you're welcome here. You're a bona fide guest, you know, <laughs> like all that stuff. Three cups of tea is we're going to kill you. <laughs> and then like, we're just, we're going to kill you. And then four cups of tea is uh, we love you. You're our brother. Welcome to the family. You may sleep here and, <laughs> and come back anytime. So it's a funny joke because like the, between the third and the fourth cup of tea is it's just like, Ooh, it's very stressful. You know, <laughs> it's like, what is this? Uh, what is this going to be? So this is what that was. You know, it was like I could have called to probably get like an answer a couple of days in because the text did say it takes a couple of days and you get the results. But I was just like, well, if they don't call, then then that means that I don't. It's fine, you know. So I was like, so the sign is if they don't call, <laughs> and sure enough, sure enough, they didn't call. So then I went back to the dock and. He was like, your CAT scan came back fine. There's nothing there. He was like, but we still have to go in. And, and again, this was like, you know, sitting in the waiting room, having no idea what I was in for. You know, I knew it was, there was going to be a procedure. I didn't do any research about it. I didn't look into it even at all. I just was like, I want to be in the dark. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to be, I don't want to face it. I don't want to do anything, you know? And so that was just sort of how I approached it. And again, I, you know, I'm sitting in that waiting room and it's like, what's about to happen? You know, is this the beginning of a very long journey or, or, or is this, you know, a false alarm? I can go home. There's no problems, you know? So it's sitting in the waiting room and just waiting and just waiting for that. And then they, you know, they call me back and they take me to a room and it's like a chair and I was like, oh, this is, there's some, this shit is going to happen. Like this like, this is just, like, obvious. Like, this is the room where shit goes down. <laughs> like, when they're sitting you on a chair that has, like, already prepared for you a laid-out piece of paper that's essentially there to be, like, a diaper, that means that, like, it's about to go down. You know, like, when you see that, that's when you just, like, you know, like, oh, shit's about to get real. <laughs> so, fucking... It's like, oh, shit's about to get real. So she's like, you know, take off your pants and your underwear, put on this robe and have a seat here. Call me when you're ready. So I was like, so I do that, sit down. She comes in, Doc comes in and he's like, uh, so your, your, your scans came back negative. There's nothing there. You know, it looks like it's perfectly fine. I was like, yeah. And he was like, yeah. He was like, so basically what happens is the prostate, kind of when it forms, like when you're a baby and then it sort of like comes together in utero and all that stuff. Like when it forms, it's fairly common for it to form in a way to like attach to your urethra or something, whatever it is, your urinary tract, in a way that allows for a tiny minuscule amount of blood to be to come into the urine, you know? And he was like, and we didn't, you know, it was sort of, it's always been there. We didn't discover it when you were a kid because we weren't looking for it. And you know, 
And so that's likely why the blood is there. And I was like, great. So I can go home. And he was like, nope, still got to do this test because it doesn't catch everything. And this is going to be what catches everything. So what they, you know, what they, what they are going to do is like take a camera and insert it up my penis and it goes into the prostate and then into the bladder, I think. And, and it looks around and sees if there's any sign of any kind of cancer, any kind of problem there and comes out, you know? So it's just like, oh, fuck, you know, I, I, now I have to do this. So she looked first thing she sets up the chair. It's like, you know, this bed thing, like at a doctor's office. So it's got like the diaper thing laid out, you know, and, and she's got it kind of like sitting up. And I was like, do people, do people watch? I was like, can you put this all the way back? And she's like, yeah, I can put it all the way back. So I laid it all the way back. And then she starts like prepping me. And it's this like awful, awful feeling. And the first thing she did was it was like, all they used was like a, like a topical anesthetic, basically. Like they don't put you under for this at all. You know, like later my therapist was like, they didn't put you under. And I was like, no, she's like, what were they supposed to put you under? <laughs> I was like, no, I don't know. I didn't do any research on it. So I had no fucking clue if they were like supposed to put me under or not. So no, it's just like a topical anesthetic that she applies by taking a Q-tip and not that I was looking, but it sure felt like she was putting it up my, you know, pee hole there. Oh yeah, this is gonna get a little graphic. So they want to fast forward a couple of minutes, but it hurt. It hurt. It hurt a lot. And she, you know, she was like, "This is gonna be a little uncomfortable." And it was like, "Oh yeah, this is this is really uncomfortable. It's painful and also just uncomfortable." And she was like, "Are we gonna give it a few minutes to kind of set in?" I'm like, "I'm familiar. I've been <laughs> the dentist so often." You know, they use that topical solution before they give you the shots when they have to drill out your cavities. So, you know, I'm waiting there a few minutes and the doctor gets there and, you know, she had described what it was going to feel like. It was like, it's going to be, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's not going to like outright hurt, but it's going to be uncomfortable. And then you're going to feel like a strong pinch when the camera crosses into your prostate and you're going to feel a strong pinch when it goes into your bladder or whatever. And, and yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable. And, uh, it, it really was, man. Like, holy fuck. I can't, I can't describe the pain to you because I never felt anything like it before. And they're right. Like on the scale of like pain, I felt more, literally more pain through like cuts because there's like nerve endings in your, you know, this is like a, a thing passing through the little, you know, separative muscles between one thing to another there and, and it has to push through. And I, I just never felt anything like that before. And it was fucking crazy. Like I can't, I can't even tell you how awful it felt. The doc goes in and he's like, okay, all clear. And just, you're going to feel another pinch now, another pinch. And he's like, okay, yep. This is uh, all clear as well. Okay. One pinch on the way out, another big pinch, you know, and then now it's coming out and zoom and it was out and it was just like a couple of minutes, but it was like, Oh my God. I was like, Doc, what do I have to do to never do that again? He was like, the good news is you never have to do that again. <laughs> Unless, like, suddenly there's, like, a lot of blood in my ear. You know what I mean? Or, like, some other sign of, like, prostate cancer or something like that. But without that, like, for just, like, a little bit of blood that's in there now, uh, it's just like, I never have to do that again. You know, 
And he was like, once there's blood in there, there's always going to be blood in there. It's just, it's just how it goes. And yours has always been there anyway, because it's just about the way it came together, you know? So it's all good. You don't have prostate cancer, you know, you're, you're, you're safe. So, you know, it's like one less thing, but in the meantime, you know, I like, it like really hurt to pee the rest of that day. <laughs> and I had chosen the path of not, of, you know, going it alone. So since, you know, that, that afternoon, that evening, or if it was the next day, I don't remember, but I finally was just like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to tell some people because it's too crazy of a story to just keep to myself. Like I have to like share the story, you know? So I told Dre and Kathleen, you know, then I told another friend and, uh, um, that was, that was like it, that was it. I didn't tell anyone after that, you know, I told my mom finally today and it was like, I know I told her the same way I told this and I, I told her today cause it's like, I knew I was going to talk about it on the pod and I was like, well, on the off chance that like anyone in my family listens to this. <laughs> So, I, you know, I didn't want, like, her to find out. So I told her, you know, and it was like, I told it like I told it today, you know, here. It's like, uh, uh, spoiler alert, I don't have cancer. Here's the story. You know, so I kind of told her like that. Which is, like, the way that you should tell your mother, I feel like. If that's what the story is going to be. Like, that's, like, how, that's, like, I feel like that's just, like, how you should do it. So, you know, Kathleen was, like, happy but pissed. You know, I was, like dude, I'm going to fucking kick you in the shins. Like, you're not an island, man. Like, like, you know, you can't, like, just do this shit alone. Like, it's not, like, that's not the right thing at all. So, I, uh, you know, I was like, you're right. Because <laughs> the truth is, like, while it's true, I really did want to live in denial, at the same time, like in those moments in the actual like waiting room, yeah, it would have been pretty awesome to have someone there with me. You know, it would have been pretty awesome to know that like I was going to like give them the result. You know what I mean? And they're going to like live it with me of like, oh man, like the relief. It was like, I didn't want to get that keyed up about it. And because of that, like, you know, maybe the relief is like diminished, but the truth is I was keyed up about it. And so the relief is great, you know, but I, I chose to, to do so much of it alone. You know, this is not something that like I've never done before. <laughs> I mean, I, I've, this is kind of my MO, you know, Whenever I've had like very serious things, I, I've often chosen to just take the take the road alone. And to my detriment, you know, and really for a couple of, you know, for and and not just to my detriment, but also if I'm being honest, it's it is disrespectful of my friends, of the people who I love and who love me. Because what I did there was I kind of presupposed that they wouldn't be able to leave me alone about it if I asked them to. Do you know what I mean? Like, like if I really was like, look, so it's not a big deal. I don't want it to be a big deal. It's probably nothing. 
but they found blood in my urine and there is a chance that it's cancer. And I'm like a little bit concerned. I don't want to talk about it all the time, but I just want you to know because there might be times where I do want to talk about it and it'd be nice to be able to talk about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, and, and my friends are all capable of hearing that and being like, all right, and doing that. And it was like, I didn't give them the chance to do what they're capable of doing there, you know? And so the kind of immediate shadow of this experience, it's like, I think next time around, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I, I really should be more open about stuff like that. And on one hand, I kind of laugh and I'm like, next time around, cause it's like, how often am I planning on worrying about cancer? You know, like hopefully it's not an often, <laughs> an often thing, but you know, it's not, a, if I'm being honest, I could look at different things happening in my life now and be like, you know, I, I think I would actually do better. I think I would do better if I was more open to sharing about this, you know, but I don't know, you know, it's like, I just, it's hard for me to do that for some reason. It's just like very, very hard for me to do that. So yeah, that's like, um, that's something to work on. It's definitely something to work on. So yeah, when to share, when not to share, you know, I, I think that there is such a thing as, I mean, I don't know. Uh, how how old fashioned do I sound by saying that there's such a thing as sharing too much? You know, like how how unwoke do I sound by saying that? But it feels right. I mean, it feels like there is such a thing as sharing too much. So knowing what the limit is there, and then, but also not cutting yourself off from receiving help. You know, it's really key and important. So, I don't know. I'm thinking about that right now. I'm definitely thinking about that. I'm trying to figure out, you know, trying to figure out what to do there. Okay, change of policy. Let's learn and grow, folks. Let's learn and grow. So, anyway. Yeah, so it's funny. Like, I, I'm, you know, I, I still, I try to stay plugged into the news and politics and things like that. And, and very quickly... And I think wonderfully so, even though I don't love Biden, I really don't love Biden. But since, you know, since he has taken over as president, things have returned to kind of like a politics as normal kind of thing, which is on one hand, fairly awful because you would hope that people would learn and, and um, maybe we'd have like a different approach, but it's also a sort of big relief, which isn't to say that there aren't, you know, sort of these aftershock tremors from the Trump presidency, you know, leftover things, you know, there's certainly a, a Republican party that is whole. Oh, I, I mean, really, really, there's a, there's a big war happening in the Republican party behind closed doors right now. And it's a significant, you know, challenge that is, you know, because of the Trump presidency and, and is likely to have a huge impact on our country, certainly in the next number of years and potentially forever, you know, so that's like a huge thing that's going on. And, 
you know, certainly all the different political things that are happening towards getting us, you know, transitioned from pandemic to post-pandemic, from, you know, pre-vaccine to post-vaccine and all that jazz. So, you know, there's, there's that stuff going on and, you know, it's just sort of, it's, it's, um, it's still intense, you know, it's still got all that intensity, but, but, but what there isn't is the kind of daily onslaught of provocative things said from the pulpit, you know, of the presidency of, of, of things that are these like dog whistle and then not even dog whistle, just straight up fucking semi truck horn statements that are completely racist and awful and ignorant and everything else. And just this, this height of like anger and, and things that are kind of going on and, and, you know, it's such a relief to not have that voice in there anymore. But like how we deal with having had that voice now that he's not in the Oval Office, at least, is fascinating. You know, it, it really is like what it's like when there's an abusive parent that's major in the picture and then is sort of finally taken out of the picture, but is still off to the side and able to be heard, you know, <laughs> like, and then the traumatized children, you know, that we are like, you know, kind of dealing with the trauma and you hear that voice and it gives you the shakes and it, but you know, you're just so thankful that it's, that he's not there anymore, you know? This is like really fascinating thing, and and it's gotten me to thinking. I mean, I've been thinking all along during the Trump presidency about this, and it's not like an you know anyone who who thinks about politics, and also anyone who thinks about mental health, <laughs> like the cross section of those people, you're probably going to at some point think about mental health and politics and the impact that it has had on history. You know, and the various leaders that have had different you know, mental health challenges and issues. I mean, how, how much of the story of human history is about bad parents and fucking painful teeth? You know what I mean? Like how many wars have been fought because, because somebody wasn't raised right? <laughs> how many, how many people have died because somebody had a toothache and they didn't have patience for politics, you know, for diplomacy. You know what I mean? Like, like, how how much has that happened throughout history? I mean, it's it's sort of unbelievable. And, you know, it's a common thing to look and say, well, to something, you know, anyone who runs for president, there's going to be something wrong with you. You know what I mean? Like, if you're running for president, chances are you've got a mental health issue. <laughs> because why would you fucking do that otherwise? There's, like, no reason for you to do that otherwise, you know? So, you know, the story of mental health and the Trump story is just fascinating to me. And it frightens me kind of more and more as time goes on. Because I still don't think we're really talking about it as a country you know i just don't think we're really talking about it and because of that you know we're just we're not 
like desensitizing ourselves to these conversations in a way that's going to be helpful and helping us to really think about what made him the president that he was and how that impacted the country, you know? I mean, the thing of it is, is that mental health, you know, I think we have to look at it as like the context, not an excuse. Does that make sense? Like, you know, understanding Donald Trump's kind of familial history, understanding how he was raised, understanding that, yeah, this is a person who is clearly a clinical narcissist, you know, like clearly, like, like, like you don't have to be like a psychological genius to recognize that shit from a mile away, you know, just look it up and what the symptoms are and then look at him and his whole entire presidency. It's obvious. It's not, but it's, but it's not uncommon for fucking narcissists to end up as president. You know, it's just their levels to this, <laughs> but it's a, I think it's a really interesting and tough challenge because on one hand, the story of the Trump presidency is a story of an entire nation. And because of that nation, because of that nation's kind of standing in the world, an entire world being held hostage by an abusive parent, you know, by, by a narcissist being held hostage by a narcissist. That's what the story is, you know, just held emotional hostage by a narcissist. And yet, do we want to say that having significant mental health issues is automatically a disqualifying factor for things like the presidency and other leadership positions. Like, is that what we want to say? You know, because I think when we do that, what we do is we cut off the possibility of president Lincoln, you know, we, we, we don't understand that a lot of times mental health and challenges that people face are a direct result of the, the really important way that they see the world. You know, the really essential way that they might be able to help the world because of how they can sort of diagnose things and then feel things through and then think them through. The, the, the brain is like, you know, a race car. I mean, it's like a spaceship. It's a, it's a finely tuned high tech machine that when you push it to its limits, you know, that's often when different things can kind of come loose. Does that make sense? Like, you know, as a parent, I think a lot about when to expose our children to pain, for example. You know, when is the human mind, like, ready to really come to understand the extent of human pain and suffering? You know, I used to live in Manhattan, and I've thought often about what it might be like to raise children in New York City. And, uh, 
you know, ultimately I decided I didn't want to because the thing about New York City is you walk around and you're going to encounter human suffering. You know, there's there's always homeless people everywhere. You know, there's human interactions that are aggressive and unpleasant, you know, and there's there's violence. There's often violence. I mean, chances are if you live in a city long enough, you're going to encounter the extremes of human behavior because there are so many people, you know, because of the sheer amount of people, chances are you're, you're going to experience the full gamut of human emotion, human, human interaction, which means, yeah, you know, most of the time you walk around New York city, what do you see? You see just people going about their day. You see couples, having loving exchanges, right? You see all kinds of things, but then you see people in fights. You see people who are stressed. You see people who are angry, you know, you see people who are just pushed to their limit. You know, you see all of that. And you see all of that before you can begin to even process, you know, what it could possibly mean as a child. You see it. So what does that do? Like, what does that do? You know, I sort of grew up in the shadow of New York City, so I, I saw things, but I didn't grow up living there. So it was a different kind of relationship with it, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think about that all the time in terms of, you know, what, you know, what are we exposing our brains to? And what, what's the impact, you know, what is the impact that that has on us? And you know, what Trump did to us by the way that he performed his presidency. You think about the the mental health damage that he caused in anxiety alone throughout the four years of his presidency. It's it's sort of mind-boggling, you know. But I, you know, but I don't think the answer is that any mental health issue is is uh is is a disqualifying thing. I don't think that can be the answer. But because we're not having conversations about it in any real and sophisticated way, you know, we're we're, we're not we're not giving ourselves the the ability to have a sophisticated solution to to these challenges. You know, we're just not because we're not creating a lexicon of words and understandings and anything about what mental health challenges are and how they work and what the impact of them are. You know, what, why, why would we want to disqualify Donald Trump from running for president? Whereas we really wouldn't want to disqualify Abraham Lincoln from running for president. You know, what, what's the difference between their, mental health issues that make one perhaps the greatest president of all time and the other, perhaps the worst president of all time. Like what, what's the difference there, you know? And what do we do with all of these politicians? So, so many of them have significant issues with narcissism. You know, I mean, fucking Joe Biden, who's eons better than Trump, you know, but like I've often said, like just a fucking different side of the same coin. But there is a, a recording of him with um, some organizers from the Black Lives Matter movement. 
And he said something like, no one has been better friends with African-Americans than me or something crazy like that. But the, I mean, like, it's like, oh, this sounds familiar. Yeah, anyone who says no one has but me in any context, it's like, uh, can you, are you in a mood? Can I, can I get you a sandwich? You need to sit down for a minute. Can we, can we like just get our head together here a little bit and uh, maybe reapproach this conversation from a bit more of a logical perspective than, you know, no one has any more than me or whatever. Like, it's like, come on. Like, that's what I'm saying. But like, I don't know, you know, is Biden a narcissist? Yeah, I think, I think he probably is. He probably is a little bit, a little bit of a narcissist there, you know, certainly he's got some of the telltale signs in terms of saying shit like that. You know what I mean? But like, but do I feel relieved having him as president in comparison to what Trump was? Yeah. Does he like know the difference between being a complete provocateur in terms of just like how Trump was like just spent four years inciting riots in America, basically. And, and Biden knows how to like, not do that. Yeah. He knows how to not do that because mental health is a fucking context, not the excuse. You know, we don't look at someone like Trump and say, he's a narcissist. He doesn't have any control over his behavior. That's why, you know, he's an awful president. But when you describe it that way, you take away any type of, you know, responsibility, like any type of like moral culpability there in terms of like what he was and what he did and how he, how he's chosen to live his life. And, you know, yeah. And I don't think that that's right to do that. You know, I, I really think that we ought to, you know, not think of mental health as an excuse because it's not. You know, even in my darkest times where I was most out of control, you know, where I really felt like I didn't have any control over my brain, even there, you know, those moments never turn me into an asshole. Do you know, you know what I mean? Like, there was like a, certainly, you know, there was certainly a lot of destructive components of that towards me and towards, you know, important people in my life, but it never turned me into a dick or like a racist or like... <laughs> Like a hateful person, you know, I wasn't going to hurt anyone, but you know, I'm, I'm lucky in that way in that my mental health issues are, you know, one where the sort of irrational ire is pointed inward. There are others who have mental health issues where the irrational ire is pointed outward. And in those cases, you know, it, it's, it's a significantly, you know, sort of different challenge. 
but still one where you can take responsibility for your actions. Sure, psychoses are different. Psychoses, when you're hallucinating, that's a different story. But even, even there, you know, there's treatments and medicines and things that can be done. There's still responsibility to be had. That you can still be a very capable person and deal with all of these struggles and challenges. And I just, you know, I wish that, that we would, as a country, be talking about it more. You know, I really, I really do. I'm afraid that in not talking about it enough, we're not giving ourselves the kind of sophisticated understanding of it in a way that's going to help us to make those decisions that are going to, that are going to actually do this issue good moving forward. So yeah, I'm concerned. You know, I'm concerned. We can't quite say in a right way, like why Trump should never have been president. And we can't quite say in a right way why it's appropriate for Biden to be president. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't know. So yeah, I, I've got some concerns there. So I, I haven't quite like fleshed out my thoughts on this in terms of like what the answer is or exactly what the prognosis is. Like I, I'm still trying to kind of like figure out what my how to fully articulate how I feel about this. So I don't know. I'll keep, I'll keep kind of hashing it out in future episodes, but yeah, these are the two things. So yeah, I don't have cancer. <laughs> that's, that's one thing. I don't have cancer. And two, yeah, a few months since uh, Trump left office, it's probably time in the freshness of it to look back and start to really understand, diagnose, you know, kind of what was going on there and start to really understand you know, how to, how to not end up in that situation again, you know, but also how to make sure that the people who could be great leaders are given every opportunity to be a great leader, despite the different challenges they face. So yeah, those are the, those are the two things. Hope everybody's doing all right. Uh, by the way, so I'm still moving forward with this, um, whole, uh, you know, an episode a week, I know I said in the last episode that the goal was to put out a new episode every Saturday. I realize kind of, well, first of all, I recorded that episode in, in like February and didn't put it out until March. So it took me a while to like edit it and put it out. But I realized that like, I'd rather put the episode out, episodes out every Sunday and not Saturday. Cause I, I enjoy having time to edit it. And if I'm planning on putting it out on every Saturday, then I kind of feel rushed on Friday night to edit the damn thing. So if I put it out every Sunday, maybe even specifically every Sunday evening, that that's kind of, that's kind of perfect, you know, because then it gives me, you know, all day Saturday and all day Sunday to record it, you know, to record it and also edit it and put it together and then get it to Eric to, you know, to post it and all that jazz. So yeah, I'm not going to do every Saturday, but I will do every Sunday. Like that's, that's the goal. And, no, I'm saying I will do it as if I'm definitely going to do it. But yeah, the goal is to ramp up and for my second full year of podcasting to put out an episode every week, if possible. So that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. So yeah, anyway, 
Uh, as always, if you want to take part in the conversation, feel free to email me, josh at perryveracost.com. I do hope you're doing well. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, as always, keep it together. Bye.